0: Uh, parents, we have uh, a class uh, for children who are above the children's church age and yet whom you may not uh, th- want to be in a sermon about same-sex marriage and some of its implications. Uh, and that's going to be taught by Clay uh, Taylor, one of our elders. I, if you want my honest appraisal, I think it'll be fine, but I want you to exercise your responsibility as your children's parents, and I don't want to hijack uh, or presume anything on your behalf before God. Uh, Our sermon text this morning is Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. Hear the word of God. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, The daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given He sent and had John beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Oh Father, this is a sobering passage, and so I'm I'm praying first, Father, for uh, the gift of sobriety. I'm I'm praying that you would help us uh, to feel the weightiness of these issues and 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 not just the sin uh, that is on display here and the connection between the heart that we see on display in this passage in the heart of our culture today, but, Father, that we would also feel the weightiness of the gospel and the power of Christ and the hope, that the word of hope that is over this entire world because of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm praying for the power of the gospel to... Be released today again in your Spirit's wisdom and sovereignty to both save and to sanctify. And we ask that you would do these things for the glory of your name and our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, friends, I, uh, I have felt such a strong need that has been undiminished uh, by my vacation to address this issue again with you, honestly, from our passage. And there are so many reasons about, uh, for that. Um, I, of course, am very much aware of current events and whether you know it or not, at some point in the next two weeks, it is uh, virtually certain that the United States Supreme Court is gonna hand down its decision in the uh, in the Doma case and in the California Proposition Eight cases, and depending on which way those holdings go, um, we you need to have your eyes open to the vast changes that are potentially just right around the corner. And and we as Christians, therefore, we need to be thinking right i mean you're watching the news you're listening to the news you're reading the newspaper you're hearing things you're seeing things you're involved in conversations with people whether or not they they are actually uh, in a homosexual lifestyle you could be interacting with people just like my sister who who doesn't see any Reason that same-sex marriage should be okay and has absolutely no, uh, no grasp of the issues that are at stake. It just is a, an obvious issue to her. You're interacting with people like that, just as I am. So what are you going to say as a Christian? And how are you going to think as a Christian? And how particularly are you and I going to steward The good news of the gospel. Are we now in a category that the gospel doesn't have anything to say about beyond, no, you're not supposed to do that? Well, this is important. And this whole issue is a very revelatory issue in the sense that what it does for us is it lays bare the heart of our culture. It's not a new heart. It's just the, the same-sex marriage debate is just another window into the commanding priorities that drive and shape our culture. And it gives us another opportunity to see what does the gospel have to say? What does the, what does the cross of Jesus Christ have to say about these values that, and, and really so many of them are just myths that our culture is inculcating into us, and so uh, my great burden in uh, over the, this is now the third message. I, Lord willing, is going to be the last one on this theme. Uh, the sigh of relief rose from the congregation. But my great burden is to equip you. And uh, and I know we're not done thinking through this issue. I just wanted to make a good beginning. And, and for any of you who in particular are struggling with the issue of same-sex attraction in your own life and, and what homosexual sin, uh, how to deal with that in light of the gospel, what I want to say from the very beginning is this message is not against you. <laughs> and I will say as a pastor, I don't consider myself above you. I've said it in each of the previous two messages. I'm not preaching this, and I'll say it again because it's utterly critical for you to hear from me that I am preaching this message as a man with a history of sexual sin who has been healed by Christ. So I'm not not preaching this from the balcony of an ivory, ivory tower. I'm with you at the foot of a bloody cross, and there's hope Okay, so I know that for some of you, because it's been a few weeks, you, you're saying, wait a second, Mike, where in the world are you getting uh, same-sex marriage out of this text? So I need to make that connection between the text and our time first. Let's think about that, just, just very briefly, want to review that with you. The connection, see, I've been arguing over the last several weeks that there's a straight line that runs from Herod's birthday celebration. Um, all the way to the same-sex marriage debate in our day. And that line runs through John the Baptist's imprisonment and his martyrdom. And, and the reason those things are connected is because of the reason that John the Baptist is imprisoned and then ultimately executed by Herod. And that reason ultimately is that John dared to challenge the same formative assumptions uh, that are operating in our day in the midst of the same-sex marriage debate. And those assumptions are this. They're Herod's assumption and Herodias' assumption that they are free to love whomever they want and therefore marry whomever they want and that they are the final determiners of who they get to love and who they can marry. And John is ultimately executed for his audacity in stating that there is a higher authority that controls even those most intimate areas of human life. And, of course, the authority that John is appealing to and invoking is the authority of God himself, the maker of marriage. And those are the very same assumptions that operate in our day. So I see this text as giving us a window into that that issue. And we've seen also uh, that the real issue here is neither ultimately sexual nor is it new. Uh, What we've seen is that the passion to redefine marriage. And see, if you get this wrong, guys, if you get this wrong, all you're going to do is chase symptoms. And you're going to play into the very thing that the world expects Christians to say, which is that sex is bad and that God is a prude and that he's a killjoy and that you as a Christian are speaking from a position of moral superiority to people who don't have the same sin patterns that you do. And friends, if you don't see that the underlying issue here in the passion to redefine marriage is the same underlying issue that has always defined humanity and shaped human history since the Garden of Eden, you won't be properly equipped. And that issue is not a question of redefining, ultimately, our sexuality. It's a question about our passion to redefine our humanity apart from God. So the same-sex marriage debate is really just a skirmish in a much larger war. It's a chapter in a much larger story. It's a symptom of a much deeper disease. And what's interesting and so helpful about seeing it that way is as soon as we understand the issue in that way, then we immediately are in a position to recognize that what we have in common with the proponents of same-sex marriage is far more than what separates us from them. Because we all know what that malady is, right? We all suffer from that same malady, the desire to take our lives and define them for ourselves. We get that, and we've been rescued from that in the gospel. So the very same gospel, right, that rescues us, us is still relevant. It is still the power of God for salvation to everyone. There is no path away from the cross. There's no innovation that we need. There's no no change in ministry strategy. We need to believe what we believe and to trust in the power of God. And so last time, Uh, we looked at three myths uh, or objections uh, to God's design, common objections that are asserted, that that I've experienced uh, being asserted with me in argument before and that, that you read about and hear about. And I call them myths because they proceed from falsehoods, but they operate. They're powerful ideas that shape and misinform this debate, and we need to understand them. And so we looked at those three three myths last time, the myth of ownership, hypocrisy, and sympathy. And this morning, I want to finish off by looking at three more powerful myths that that misshape, really, and misinform uh, this debate and also the response of the church and Christians in the midst of these cultural shifts. And those three myths are this. The first myth is the myth that sex is nothing. And the second is the myth that sex is everything. And the third is the myth of despair. Let's think first about the myth that sex is nothing. And what what I mean by that is that this is an attempt to lay hold of the ways in which our culture sinfully undervalues human sexuality. Now, that might come as a surprise to you, given how sexualized our culture is. But let me explain what I mean by this myth. This is a very powerful and influential pillar of our cultural orthodoxy. It's not stated the way I stated it, but it is implied from every corner of our culture today. And here's how it it essentially uh, would be summarized. This myth would would tell us that sex is not a big deal, that it's not special, that it's not transcendent, that it is purely transactional, and that therefore the only issue with respect to human sexuality is human consent. There is absolutely no transcendent significance to human sexuality according to this myth. And so the only legitimate boundary marker for sexual activity is human consent. So if I consent and my partner consents, it's okay. And the reason that this, or or the way that I see that filtering into the same-sex marriage debate as a key foundational assumption is, is, is this... In this debate, right, I mean, one of, the, one of the ideas that you keep hearing repeated over and over again is that this, this, isn't, this is not going to have bad consequences, right, as long as people are free to love who they want to love. That's a purely transactional, horizontal... I guess another way to express this is that this is a purely... That the significance of human sexuality is just horizontal only, there's no vertical, transcendent sense, and you know what is so fascinating to me about that is we know that's not true. We know that's not true. Herod knew it wasn't true. Look at Herod in this passage. There's there's no way that Herod believed that sex was nothing. Either before or after John's execution. I mean, think about this. This is such an interesting story. We get this window. I mean, the the way this is set up is just fascinating in the text because what happens is that news of Jesus' ministry reaches Herod. And what Matthew gives us is a report on how Herod interpreted this news about Jesus' ministry. He's doing miracles. And notice what immediately comes out is Herod's interpretation that, oh, this is John the Baptist who's come back from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Now, think about that. That is very odd. And then you have a flashback, right, that explains a why how it is that John uh, was killed. But what's interesting is to notice this. Herod was the king, right? John the Baptist was not somebody who was in a power position in Galilee, right? I mean, he was a weirdo. He was a, if ever anybody was on the fringe, it was John the Baptist, right? He was living out uh, in the wilderness. He dressed weird. He ate weird. He talked weird. Why in the world, if you were the king, why in the world would it bother you if that fringe flake said that you're? Marriage essentially stealing your brother's wife, that that was problematic and that that was contrary to God's law. Why would that bother you? Why would you even care? I think the answer is very obvious. Herod knew it was true. It struck a chord with his conscience. And so what does Herod try to do? He tries to shut John up by imprisoning him. But it doesn't work. And so by the time you get to verse 5, Herod wants to kill John. He wants to silence this reminder that what he has done with his sexuality is contrary to God's will. He doesn't want any other voice. He doesn't want to hear. And so ultimately, Herod's purpose to murder John is initially formed, not in response to Herodias' daughter's seductive dance, but it's formed simply because, and initially, John has the audacity to speak with the voice of God into Herod's bedroom and to declare that Herod's bedroom is to be God's throne room. And Herod ultimately murders John, as we see here. And notice his conscience is not cured, is it? His conscience is so troubled, it's so burdened, that that when he hears news of Jesus' ministry, what... The the first interpretation he gives is that this is John the Baptist come back from the dead. Do you see what's happening? Herod has a sense that there is justice that is pursuing him, that he cannot escape his sin, and that Herod is coming undone. His conscience is haunted. It's so haunted that the king, look who Herod's telling this to. Look who Herod is confiding in. He's confiding to his servants. This is a man who is crumbling because his conscience is testifying to him over and over and over again about the truth of God. Friends, the conscience, the conscience is God's tool. And the voice of God in the human conscience is never silenced. Read Romans 1 and 2. And so the reason I linger over that point is because sometimes when we get in conversations with people about an issue like this, we feel like we have to do all the heavy lifting in the conversation. Like we have to be the one who comes with the key to unlock the hardened conscience of someone else and we have to say it just right or have just the right persuasive argument and that when they don't respond to our naked eye in the conversation or they dismiss us or they mock us or they get angry, we think we failed. Friends, we have not failed when we tell the truth. Nor should we assume that God is not following those folks around and that, like Augustine says, he is more inward to them than their own hearts are. Friends, do you believe that about God? Do you believe that about God? We need to expect that God will always be his most persistent, his most insistent, his most effective witness. That truth is deeper and more pervasive in every single human heart than we could ever reach. No, Herod knew that sex wasn't nothing. And so does everyone with whom we interact. How else do you explain the anger? We should be exactly the opposite, by the way. We should be exactly the opposite. We have warrant for patience and hope. But more fundamentally, right, not only did Herod, Herod's experience uh, show us that sex isn't nothing, but sex isn't nothing to God. Okay, and I just want to look at two places with you to show this to you. This is very important to see these things. I don't, I don't take it for granted. I know we come from a lot of different backgrounds, and, and so I don't take it for granted that you have been uh, instructed in just basic uh, biblical revelation about human sexuality. So I'm not going to assume that. And this may be a way that, that equips you, I trust under God's grace, that this will be a way that equips you to be able to speak with people. If you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13, which is on page 1009 in your pew Bible, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. And... I just want you to listen to this verse. This is an astonishing verse. At the end of this amazing epistle, in the last chapter, there's kind of a, uh, this gathering together of all these uh, pastoral strands, pa- various pastoral issues. Money is there, and hospitality is there, and love in the church is there, doctrine is there, uh, all kinds of things are there. And One of the things that's there is marriage and sexuality. These are implicate. In other words, these are, in the writer's mind, these are entailments of the gospel and the ministry of Jesus Christ that he has just spent 12 chapters opening up for us. And then he gets to verse 4 in chapter 13 and he says this Let marriage be held in honor among all. Notice he doesn't just say, Let marriage be held in honor among those who are married. And let it also be remembered that when he says marriage here, he means marriage as God has defined marriage, which is one man, one woman. Let marriage be held in honor among all, young and old, Single, married, it doesn't matter. Marriage as an institution designed and ordained by God. He's the maker of it. It is to be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled. Now for those of you who are tempted to believe that God is a killjoy, I want that phrase to be with you. God wants the marriage bed to be undefiled because it is a gift from his hand to husbands and wives. And he wants it to be a place where there is a a demonstration and experience of his lavish generosity god is the god of creation he loves our bodies let the marriage bed be undefiled why for god will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous or as the nas translates it for fornicators as premarital sex or outside of marriage, sexuality outside of marriage, fornicators and adulterers, God will judge you. See, what the writer is reminding us of is that God values human sexuality, and he has determined what the boundaries for it are, and it is uh, within the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman, and God is the guarantor and the defender of those boundaries it's not up to us it's up to god now some of you are mortified and terrified because you didn't you didn't hold marriage in honor among all you didn't honor marriage and you were a fornicator or you were an adulterer and some of you are burdened right now as you hear this hang on okay hang on cuz one of the questions is how did god judge your fornication How did he judge your adultery? Let's go, before I give you that answer, let's go to 1 Thessalonians, which is page 987. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Page 987. Again, very strong language. Uh, Starting at verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification... That's a little trivia. The next time somebody says to you, well, I don't know what the will of God for my life is, you say, well, I do. It's your sanctification. And how is sanctification explained? In this context, it's explained this way. That you abstain from sexual immorality. That you, in other words, that you fast from sexual immorality. That each one of you know, he's addressing people in the church here, okay? Christians. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. See, a Christian understands that the body is the temple of the living God, (laughs) that every Facet of our lives, every dimension of our lives, our sexuality included, our genitalia, everything, that those are God's. That no one, verse 6, transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you for God has not called us for impurity but in holiness therefore whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives his holy spirit to you see it's very serious and i just want you to feel the weight of that and and we need to we need to have a robust basis for speaking Uh, from the word of God about what the boundaries are. There is no way that God is indifferent about sexual sin. It matters to him. And the greatest proof of that is the cross. See, the way, the greatest proof that sex is not nothing is the cross of Jesus Christ. And there is not a single person other than Jesus Christ who has lived on this planet who has not committed sexual sin. And I just want to say to you that it's at the cross for those of you who for those of you who have a history that has not been marked by chastity, and that has not been marked by purity, I want to say to you that you don't need to go anywhere else except the cross. What do we do with this strong language that God is going to judge adulterers and the sexually immoral? What are we going to do with this language that God is the avenger of marriage covenants that are breached and betrayed? What do we do with that language? What do we do with that truth? I'll tell you what, I know what Jesus Christ did with that truth. You see, Jesus was the one against whom all that judgment and vengeance of God that our sexual sin deserved. Jesus was the one who received that vengeance. Yes, fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. And for the Christian, we hear that with a sobriety because we know that in Jesus Christ, God did judge our fornication. He did judge our adultery. He did judge our homosexual sin. He did judge our lust. He did uh, judge our viewing of pornography, our masturbation. He judged it all. He judged every infidelity. How did he do that? The boundary maker came to be the boundary keeper. And then at the conclusion of a life of perfect sexual boundary keeping and purity, he gave himself in all of his perfect purity to be judged as our substitute, as the very worst boundary breaker, because all of our sexual sin was laid on Jesus Christ. And, and, and that was the only way that we could be spared God's vengeance against our sexual sin. Jesus acted as our shield, became our sexual sin so that his Father might judge our sexual sin in him. He became that sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21, and so we might receive the pardon of God in a way that upholds the righteousness of God. It is awesome that is such a powerful truth and it equips us and it enriches us there is no one you will ever meet who can not be rescued by that Christ and because it is precisely Because he entered more deeply into our sexual sin even than we have because he at the cross went all the way to the end of the line. He went to the end of the chain of consequences of your sexual sin and my sexual sin, a place you and I have not been. And he stood there and held on in faithfulness to God. And it's precisely because he has been where we have not that when he warns us, that when he calls us to holiness, oh, friends, we ought to listen. There's a love there that is unmatched. Can you imagine? I mean, I did Trey and Scarlett Moore's wedding yesterday in Gainesville. And every time I do a wedding and I see a bride coming down the aisle in all of her beauty. you know, it may be the prettiest she'll ever be her whole life.? Okay? I never say that out loud at the wedding. <laughs> it's bad form. But I always think and, and I watch and I always watch the groom I have the best seat in the house, right? I always watch the groom, and I just think of the kind of bridegroom that Jesus has been to me because when I came down the aisle to him I was filthy and he received me and was eager to do it that is a message of hope you see we're not playing here this is about real life. That is not about good people getting a nudge of inspiration from the, 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 the selfless love of a wise man. No, that's a, that's a rescue operation for filthy, broken rebels. And it was successful, and it's inexhaustible. But that leads us to our next myth which is that sex is everything. <laughs> and you know, if your heads are spinning, they ought to be, actually, because our culture is, loves to speak out of both sides of its mouth. Because at the very same time that our culture teaches us to undervalue human sexuality, it also, and very relentlessly, teaches us to overvalue human sexuality, doesn't it? And here's what I mean by this myth. The world teaches us and shows us, and it's in the, the songs, it's in the movies, it's, it's in the things that people say, it's on television. The world teaches us that sex is all that matters, that the apex of what it means to be human is to be sexually active. And that if you're not sexually active, for whatever combination of reasons, you are somehow missing out on what it really means to be human. And you know... Take these two myths, sex is nothing, sex is everything. Think about this. What is the implied vision of human dignity that each of those myths is based on? Well, on the sex is nothing myth side, guess what the view of human dignity is? You're just an animal. You're a very sophisticated animal. And all you are is a collection of chemicals and hormones and anatomical parts. That's all you are. That's what the world says to you. And over here, the sex is everything part. What's the myth? What is the implied vision of what a human being is and what human dignity is here? Friends, you need to think about this because the world is going to give you advice every single second you listen to it, and it's going to lie to you. And you've got to have the voice of God resounding in your head, and that's going to come from God's word. And the world says, oh, sex is everything. And the implied vision of humanity is that this, it's this one area of human experience that is all that matters. You know, it's an interesting thing when you think about how, I mean, I have gay friends. They will always introduce themselves first as gay as if that were an adequate summary of their identity. You know, my name's Mike. I like John Coltrane. I like Yosemite National Park. I'm really into poetry. I love to watch Ken Griffey Jr. swing a baseball bat. I love the way Randy Johnson's slider comes in on the hands of a right-handed hitter. I love to listen to Martin Luther King's speeches. I love chocolate chip ice cream. I really love chocolate chip ice cream. I love the solar system and space and molecules and subatomic particles. Those things totally fascinate me. And yes, I'm a heterosexual. This is so... Satanically, demonically, diminishing. This is how sexual addiction is fueled. Because it's as if that in this one slice, this one sliver of human experience, this this is the gold ring. It's not true. It's not true. That's not all that you are. Friends, just think about it. There was a time when you were a human being before puberty... Hello, what percentage of human dignity did you possess before puberty? Answer that the world gives? Well, I don't know, maybe 15, 18%. The answer that God gives? 100%. 100%. And biologically, right, there's a time when our sexual activity, even in marriage, ends. Our sexuality is a bracket in a larger story. Just think about this. And that's by God's good design. It's, and the reason for that is that sex is an ultimate. Even marriage between a man and a woman is not ultimate. We know, the Lord Jesus told us, right, that, that in heaven they neither marry nor are given in marriage. It's a bracket, friends. So don't make it the whole story and don't let the world tell you it's the whole story. The most fulfilled human being who ever lived, the truest human being who ever lived was a celibate single man. That makes no sense in our world's narrative. I just finished reading the most powerful and beautiful love story I've ever read it's in a book called Jaber Crow by Wendell Berry. Now, some of you may have read that book. For years, I had friends who I normally would trust in any other realm shove that book in my face and say, Mike, you've got to read this. You're going to love this. And I'm like, oh, stop. Well, they were right. And Jaber Crow is the story of a man named Jaber Crow who for about four decades was the bachelor barber in a fictional town in Kentucky called Port William. And what's what's interesting about this story, and it completely caught me off guard, no one had ever told me about this aspect of the story. What happens in the story is that there's a woman, a young woman in the town who is married to a guy named Troy Chatham who's a farmer in the community. And this woman, whose name is Mattie, she is just a really wonderful woman. And Jaber is an observer of people. And, be, and you know his barbershop is basically the, the nexus where all the men come and all the kids come. And what happens is that Jaber falls in love with Mattie. From afar, he never tells her. And then later on, as the story progresses, he discovers through a series of events that Troy, her husband, is being unfaithful to her. And this is a shock to him. And it's a kind of a seismic shock. And what he resolves to do, it grieves him because if anyone deserved a faithful husband, Maddie Chatham deserved a faithful husband. She was a good lady. And so what Jaber resolves to do is to marry Maddie, to be for her the faithful husband that she needed but didn't have. And so there's this very moving scene in the book where he engages in a dialogue with himself, and he walks himself through marriage vows to Maddie, which he never tells anyone about. And so for the next 30 years or so, he, ha- he lives a life where he regards himself as Maddie's husband. It's a totally sexless marriage by definition. And it is, I know it sounds weird, but it is the most ennobling, intimate, love-displaying commitment that I have ever read about apart from the gospel. And yet, I kept thinking, how much better the gospel is. You know, it would have, it would have completely wrecked Maddie's life for, for Jaber to reveal that he had pledged himself to her. But there are ways in which it might have helped her too. But how much better the gospel is, my friends, that the king of glory. The faithful bridegroom has pledged himself to us to be our faithful bridegroom, to give himself for us, to welcome us into a marriage that will last forever, and that he wants us to know of his love. That is a stunning thing. Sex is not everything. The marriage of Jesus Christ to his people Is everything. And just as with the first myth, the cross is the clearest proof that sex is not everything. God is everything. And it was worth everything to Jesus Christ to give Himself for us so that we might enjoy hearing God rejoice over us as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. Oh. And finally, the last myth, and I'll just do this very quickly it's the myth of despair. What do I mean by the myth of despair? Well, if the first two myths were really about what the culture is telling us, this myth is really about what we tell ourselves. You know, this it, it, it's very easy and common for us to interpret these. I mean, there's no other way to describe it. These are tectonic shifts. In our culture, whose consequences we don't appreciate, we can't appreciate, and whose consequ- the consequences of which are really not going to be known to us for many years to come. And it's very easy to misinterpret the significance of those events in a way that leads to despair. And what I mean by the myth of despair is this that this myth misinterprets the cultural shifts we're experiencing as a defeat as a warrant for discouragement, as the beginning of some kind of new dark age compared to which the era of so-called traditional marriage was, were halcyon days. By the way, that's not true. Watch, uh, watch a madman, by the way, if you want to know uh, what the era of traditional marriage was like. It wasn't about purity. and That's why if somebody says to you, do you support traditional marriage? My answer is this, it depends on what you mean by that. I, I, I support gospel marriage. I support Christ-centered marriage. Traditional marriage doesn't glorify God. You can go to hell, be unreconciled to God through a traditional marriage. right? Unless, unless June and Ward Cleaver claim Christ and His work as their own, they're not in heaven. It doesn't matter how neatly your apron is pressed. And many times I've heard my parents and other people express a sentiment like this, and this is from my parents' perspective. You know, your mother and I are so very grateful that we were alive when we were and were able to enjoy the world we enjoyed. We don't recognize the world that is right now. And we're sorry for you and your sister and particularly for your kids that they're going to have to live through a world That looks the way it looks. Now, my folks are non Christians, but friends, I've heard these kind of things from Christians. And let me tell you, that's not okay. It's not okay to despair. I rejoice to live when I rejoice. I wouldn't trade this age for any other age. Whatever it is that is passing away is not as good as what God is ensuring that we gain. Friends, Is God the Lord of history or not? Is history the canvas of Jesus Christ or is it not? Has all authority in heaven and on earth been given to Jesus Christ or not? Will every knee and every bow and every tongue confess in heaven, on the earth, and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father? Is God in His sovereign grace as the Lord of history causing all things To work together for his glory and our good. Can he do that even through the Supreme Court constitutionally baptizing same sex marriage? Absolutely. We are Christians. We stand in history with hope. We don't despair. Despair says, oh, the days past were better than the days to come. That's a lie. That's not biblical. Paul says, Paul says in Romans 13, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. The kingdom has dawned. Christ is sovereign, the power of his blood is invincible, he is Lord over us. Every one of these eventualities, and we can rest and trust in His control. It's got to be sober, okay? You can see from this, I'm not naive about this. I fully expect that the opposition to God's design for human sexuality, as the church is faithful to model it and to proclaim it, that there's going to be opposition. There's going to be persecution, just as there was for John the Baptist. I fully expect that. But I also fully expect that Christ is going to be glorified through every facet of it. And I want to walk by faith with you through that. Let's pray. Lord, we pray, oh, we pray for hearts that would be strengthened, not by our willpower or our resolve, not by looking inside, but coming again to Calvary by faith and seeing seeing a love for this world in that cross. That, that not only strengthens us, but then that propels us outward because that cross means that there is nobody in no place, no lifestyle beyond the reach of your mercy. And we need to remember that. And we're very sorry for the ways in which we walk around, uh, at least internally, feeling like Chicken Little claiming that the sky was falling. We listen to the voices on the radio and the TV telling us that everything is crumbling. No, 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 no. Jesus Christ is building his church, and the gates of Hades are not going to prevail against it. Remind us, take us there again and again, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.